Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take a look at the current administration and we address the existential threats to America. Trump's not one of them. Neither is COVID-19. It's serious and that people die from it. We got to take it seriously, but it is not a national catastrophe or a deadly pandemic of any dimension. Joining me today, Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Brian is also the chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger, China. A few things I'd like to discuss. Let me, let me get them off my chest. I just saw a feature on the news blasting across children at risk from COVID-19. Do you know how many children uh, have died from COVID-19 in America, Claude? Four. Sadness, incredible sadness for every one of them and, and their families, but four. How many kids do you think die going to school or coming home from school every, every month in America? 10, 20, 30? I mean, you know, again, one regrets these things, but let's not make it the end of the world. I want to talk some more length, um, maybe uh, next time we do a podcast about education, just education in this COVID-19. I think there's some real question about the effectiveness of lockdown rates. We put it simply. If you look at the states that had lockdown, early lockdown and the states that had later lockdown, not much difference. If you do it per capita, not much difference. I'm, I'm not a skeptic about social distancing or most things. I find, be careful. Wear a mask if you're worried about things. But um, these lockdown orders just sort of generally applied across the country made some sense somewhere, but a lot of nonsense in, uh, in other places. We uh, started this show with a cut from Billy Joel's New York State of Mind, right? Isn't that the name of it, Claude? And this, this well describes where the country is in a New York State of Mind. Now, let's do a thought experiment. Claude, you'd be the first to answer. If, you, let's say in uh, March 10th, you had, um, I don't know, 5,000 deaths in New York. I don't think it was that high, but let's say at 5,000 deaths in New York from the virus, okay, March 5th, March 15th. Whatever the numbers were, the whole country goes into lockdown, okay? Let's take the same date, March 5th, March 10th, March 15th. 5,000 deaths in contiguous states, barely contiguous, but contiguous. North Carolina and Georgia, 5,000 deaths. Would New York have shut down over 5,000 deaths in Georgia and North Carolina? No, no, no. This is uh, the New York state of mind. And I, again, full sympathies for New Yorkers. I'm a New Yorker. Not only am I a New Yorker, I'm above 70 and <laughs> with underlying conditions. So I'm not one to make light of this. But the point is, we applied the New York circumstance and state of mind to the entire country. Add to that the media-centric city itself. I mean, it, it is, is it the biggest media center in the country or is LA? I don't know. So one, when you're talking to these anchors, they're seeing, hearing sirens all day long. And, um, I hate to say it, but for a lot of media, if it bleeds, it leads, you know? So I sent the rest of the country into convulsions, sent a panic around the whole country. A few other points quickly, but uh, can you put, please put a link up to the piece that appeared in Real Clear Politics? Piece by me and Seth. A recent Stanford University study reveals the virus is 50 to 85, 85 times um, less deadly than initially thought. It's not uh, 2% of the people who get it die. It's maybe one-tenth of 1%. It's tiny, 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 maybe less. Schools, again, I think was a catastrophe. 55 million kids and parents are really just throwing up their hands. As we think about the company, country reopening, people say, I'm going back to work. What do I do with my kids? Right. Good question. Just one, one last point. Our overreaction to this 
The irony here is we have overreacted to the dangers from the virus and underreacted to the dangers from the shutdown. Or quote, quote, Tom McClintock, California, Representative Tom McClintock, listen to this. How many of the 1.8 million new cancers each year in the United States will go undetected for months because routine screenings and appointments have been postponed? How many heart, kidney, liver, and pulmonary illnesses will fester while people's lives are on hold? I mean, I got a couple of docs. I've had to put everything off for a couple of months. Uh, how many suicides? Domestic homicides will occur as uh, families watch their livelihoods evaporate before their eyes and get on each other's nerves in small spaces. How many drug and alcohol deaths can we expect as Americans stew in their homes under police-enforced indefinite stay-at-home orders? We need to do that full count. How many new cases of obesity-related diabetes and heart disease will emerge as Americans are banished from outdoor recreation and instead spend time uh, within a few steps of the refrigerator? Apparently a lot of weight gain going on out there. And finally, if you don't want to listen to uh, me or Congressman McClintock, from whom I've just been quoting, United Nations, the economic hardships experienced by families as a result of the global economic turndown could result in hundreds of thousands of additional child deaths in 2020 because of the shutdowns. No polio vaccinations, no measles vaccinations. UN estimates a couple hundred thousand people. A couple hundred thousand deaths of children versus 60,000 deaths of old people. All lives are precious, so I understand that. But um, count everything. Count everything and then make a judgment. And I'll say this again because people are curious. I said it last time, but all this blaming Donald Trump for everything, blah, 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 blah. You know, he should have done this. He should have done that. Who's the most revered figure in the country on this stuff? Whose who's stock is the highest right now? Dr. Fauci is exactly right. 92% approval or something. He says, right now, at this moment, there is no need to change anything you are doing on a day-to-day basis. Did he say that in January? Did he say it in early February? No. He said it in mid-February? He said at the end of February, 29th, day before March 1st. They're faulting Donald Trump for not doing stuff in January and February, though he did the, the ban on uh, Chinese immigration or Chinese uh, travel to the U.S. But Fauci, the most trusted man on this, was saying at the very end of February, which is late, no need to change anything you're doing on a day-to-day basis. I find that pretty interesting. So we conclude the piece saying this. We're now being warned that a second wave of the virus will hit us in the autumn. Maybe. We'll be readier for it, by the way. And the flu will hit us, by the way, and take more lives. But I'll tell you one thing that maybe won't happen, but certainly will happen. There'll be a second wave of this crisis resulting from massive unemployment. All the mental and social illnesses and deaths that will come from that and the other policies, the lockdowns and shutdowns are bringing. In short, there will be more pain and hardship and perhaps more death from the convulsing of our country as a result of the responses to the coronavirus than from the coronavirus itself. Governors of our 50 states have real jobs. So do almost all other Americans. They should be giving them back. Well, those jobs still exist. Governor Cuomo was asked by a member of the press, I think it was just yesterday, what about these people who want their jobs back, you know, governor? You say they're not essential. He said, oh, you're sitting at home. Is your job's not essential? Go, go sign up to be a health care worker. Come on. Worked my entire life as a welder. I've worked my entire life as a, a chef in a restaurant. What are you talking about? I don't know. There's some interest in gloominess here. There's some people, I don't I mean, obviously there are people wishing this to be the demise of Trump. They're willing to scare the hell out of the whole country in order to take Trump down. But uh, there's also a kind of gloominess about all this. And don't forget those 200,000 children who aren't being immunized. That's it. Um, uh, let's go talk to Brian Kennedy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I've been 
sitting here talking to you all about uh, home, uh, the country, and let's talk about home in China and what do we do now. And uh, we'll have a few emails for you for too long. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, let's jump in with Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group, chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger, China. Brian, thanks for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Let's divide our conversation into what's going on here at home in America and then what we ought to be thinking about overseas, particularly about China. Let's start with home here. Uh, I've been spending most of my time on that with uh, our colleague, mutual friend, uh, Seth Leibson. So let's let's start there, and then we'll, we'll go overseas afterwards. Yes, I think starting here in the United States is always the right place to begin. Uh, I thought you and Seth Leibson had a great piece in Clear Politics talking about the eight reasons to support reopening the country. And I think most Americans are looking at the numbers. They are seeing that this is not the end of the world, that the steps that we've taken are going to turn the numbers of people who unfortunately have died into something like the seasonal flu. Now, this is not the seasonal flu. It's much more infectious and, for some people, much more uh, deadly. But overall, it kills about the same number of people as the seasonal flu, and it kills the same kind of people who normally succumb to the seasonal flu, that is, elderly people who also have a lot of underlying health conditions. And so we have... How many weeks now? Six weeks of evidence? Let's go on that evidence. Everyone keeps talking about the data, the data. Got to go with the data, and the data shows X, Y, and Z. Well, the data now shows, as I think you and Seth very elegantly demonstrate, that we can now reopen the country. And I was particularly jarred uh, yesterday by the fact that Secretary Mnuchin, in some public venue, said we're going to open uh, start opening parts of the economy, and that we should have most of the economy open by August, and hopefully all of it opened after that. Well, my God, why are we going to close down May, June, July, and August, four more months, to keep this shut when I think you and Seth and people's common sense are demonstrating that we can open the economy, if not tomorrow, you know, at, the, at least at the end of the month. So I'm I'm uh, I'm both encouraged by all the numbers that I see, but I'll be honest, a little discouraged about I think the lack of push to get the country going again quickly enough. Now they also think the administration is speaking in kind of contradictory ways at times. Secretary Mnuchin said just what I did about you know opening in August, but then Secretary Barr, uh, Attorney General Barr, excuse me, thought rather. Uh, sensibly, that he is willing to look at complaints around the country from citizens and businesses whose states are cracking down too hard on them. So we have a we have a not perfect situation right now 
where you know evidence is telling us one thing, but the actions of the government is suggesting another. Well, it's particularly disturbing that uh, Secretary Mnuchin says it because he is, of course, Secretary of Treasury, powerful, important figure, central f- figure and player in this uh, this response, governmental response, and maybe more important, often stands next to and meets with the president. So that's that's disturbing. The the other thing is, I have been told by economists, I can give you the the the, the, the blood the blood toll, not the treasure toll as well, but I can tell you the body count. I can as we end our piece by saying, I don't know about a another round of COVID-19 this fall, but I do know that's possible. But I do know something with a certainty. More and more people will more people will die from these shutdowns and close down orders than from the uh, virus. People are not getting screenings for heart conditions, for cancer. Um, surgeries of all sorts have been put on hold. Of course, drug abuse is way up. Opioid use is up. Alcoholism, domestic violence, suicide, etc. Uh, don't believe me. Believe the United Nations if you want. I mean, the one number they came up with was two to 300,000 kids, Brian. Kids, children. Not people over 65 or 70. Yeah, I know all lives are precious, but, uh, you know, the old burning house, you know, rescue, rescue the ba- your baby or rescue your grandfather, rescue the baby. Um, you know, caterus paribus, all things being equal. Um, they estimate two, 300,000 children's lives will be lost worldwide because of shutdown orders and places being locked down because of simple reason. People forget that in many parts of the world, they still need measles vaccinations and polio vaccinations, and they're not going on. Uh, that's maybe a couple hundred thousand right there to say nothing about what happens uh, in our own in our own house. So, you know, I hate to see this thing, you know, life versus money or life versus earnings. Earnings are, of course, critical to life, but it's. It's lives lost from COVID-19 versus earnings and jobs and and self-respect loss, plus lives lost and many other things. So I, I'm sorry. No, I think I, I, I'm supposed to be asking I, no, you I think, questions. Yeah. No, I, I know. I, I wanted to ask you the questions, ask you a couple questions though as well. But no, I think you would, you and Seth have demonstrated not only in this piece but in other pieces that it really is lives versus lives. The only question is, you know, why should they be lost? And shutting the country down this way is costing us lives. And lives, I would argue, uh, that would be lost in a much more tragic way because they don't need to be. And that's most unfortunate. And you know, actually, Ryan, the, suffering will be gr- the suffering will be greater. I just saw a headline blare across the screen on my favorite channel, and it said, COVID-19, great risk to children's mortality, followed by the story... That four children in America have died from COVID-19. Four, nation of 325 million people, and they all had underlying conditions, comorbidities, other serious problems. Four. Well, look, you, know, you reminded me of this, but why do we say, you know, if a ship is sinking, women and children first? It's not because they're the weaker of the sexes, right? It's because there was a time in our civilization where... Yes, life was precious, but our civilization is what was at stake. And so we said women and children first because the women and children can make more people, something as basic as that. If you destroy young people, if you destroy, you know, the ability to have future generations, then your civilization goes away. And so there's a very practical element 
in making sure that the young people, the families, the women who are going to be having the next generation are capable of doing so, because those are the people who perpetuate your civilization because you think that civilization is worth defending. Today, we somehow are, we've consumed ourselves with trying to make sure that people who are, you know, older, who have comorbidities, we're trying to ensure that they don't die as well. But of course, the nonsense there is, we're all going to die someday. And we also have the common sense approach of taking those people who are older with comorbidities and being able to take care of them separate from the rest of the country. It, it doesn't have to be one or the other. If we have the resources, we can make sure those older people with comorbidities are protected and taken care of. But we are so impoverishing the country today that that itself becomes difficult. And so I think a return to common sense is partly what we need here because I, I, for one, don't see it happening. There's a very practical sense in which a country has to think about what does the future look like. And right now we're taking our future and we are impoverishing it. We're keeping it at home, out of school, out of work. Yeah. We're dispiriting people. We're demoralizing people. I think, I think we've done everything we can do to get this virus under control. Now is the time to reopen the country and get people going again. We don't have an infinite amount of time, so I want to go to your sure. strike zone, although you're so smart on all these things. What is the Chinese art of war when it comes to this coronavirus, you think? Well, I've written this piece for the American Mind over at AmericanMind.org, the Claremont Institute's publication. And I'm trying to argue in that piece that, one, we ought to think of this as war, that the Wuhan virus may not have started intentionally as a weapon of biowarfare, but it certainly seems to be ending up as one, meaning they, they may not have, the, the Chinese Communist Party may not have created this virus as a bioweapon in this Wuhan laboratory with the sole purpose of transporting it to the United States in order to kill Americans. That may not have been their intent. But we do know that there was a virus in Wuhan, and we do know with absolute certainty that the Chinese government stopped flights going from Wuhan to the rest of China because they didn't want this spreading. But they allowed flights, international flights, to go to Europe and the United States, knowing this virus was going to spread. And I'm trying to argue that even though it may not have started as a bioweapon, it is certainly having that result today. Because one of the very first things the Chinese did was not to allow the American Center for Disease Control access to what was going on in Wuhan. The outbreak was occurring. They were locking things down. The U.S. government said, can we please go in and see what is happening? The Chinese response was no. Now, if you're an American policymaker, you're going to look at that. And you're going to say, well, what do you mean? No. We need to look at this, analyze, you know, what's going on with this virus so that we can prepare for it ourselves, right? Aren't we in this together? The response was no. We'll give you the gene sequencing later of this virus. Now, what happened in U.S. policy circles? They had to have said to each other as the virus was breaking out in the United States, we really don't know what this is. How serious is this? 
you and I and others were having these conversations a couple months ago. We were saying, well, is this, is this just the flu? It is. We were told, no, it's 10 times worse than the flu when it comes to mortality. It's 20 times worse than the flu, 30 times worse than the flu. Oh, really? That's a lot of people. Just do the math. That's a lot of people dying. We better lock things down and really try to figure this out and make sure this doesn't spread. Honest conversations were being had in the Trump administration to the point where they decided we better lock this down. We don't know what this is. And the fact that we didn't know what it was, that was the result of China and the Chinese Communist Party and a strategic decision, I am arguing, that they didn't want us to know. They wanted to spook the United States. They wanted us to shut down our economy and our country because that's the only logical thing we could have done. But once we did that... Let me interrupt. Let me, let me interrupt a second. Can I? Please, please. I want to come back to, as you develop this thread, I want to come back to, because you're making a very strong case about them, why then are you not convinced it was an intentional release? Because it was sloppy, because it could have been bigger, because it, 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 it had a certain inadvertence and then cover-up quality to it? I mean, that's kind of what you're saying, is that maybe happened accidentally, but then, there were, then the behavior was terrible. They covered up, didn't cooperate, you know, flew people all over the world. Why do you not believe it was intentional? Well, this may be a nuance here, uh, so forgive me. The Chinese will be well aware of the fact that under U.S. strategic doctrine, if we're attacked by a weapon of mass destruction, we're going to retaliate to any country that does that to us, also with a weapon of mass destruction, as I point out in the article. that Forget, forget a bioweapon. Imagine someone dropped a nuclear weapon, quote-unquote, accidentally on the United States. Oh, I'm sorry, it was an accident we dropped this nuclear weapon. Well, if somebody intentionally drops a nuclear weapon on us, we drop a nuclear weapon on them because that's the kind of mutually assured retaliation that ensures that that kind of behavior doesn't continue, if you see my point. That if, the Chi- that if it absolutely appeared as if the Chinese did this intentionally, then we are at full-scale war with People's Republic of China and that our stated strategic response would have to be a nuclear attack, because we're not going to engage. We we have signed treaties saying we're not going to engage in biological warfare. But we would use our nuclear weapons to retaliate, because that's our doctrine, and that's a way of signaling to any country on Earth that you are not going to do this to us. Okay, I see, I see why you said nuanced. And when you started to answer, I didn't see it at the beginning of your answer, because you started to answer, you said, well, if they intentionally dropped a deadly weapon on us, you know, uh, and caused the deaths of 50,000 people, we'd respond the same way. It's the nuance, the fact that they might have wanted to do just that, but they said, let's not make it look like it was intentional. That is, it may still a bit. Of course, it may still a bit intentional, but let's make it look like it was inadvertent. That's possible, isn't it? That's more possible. Yeah, more possible. Look, in, in all, all war is deception, right? Okay. Whether that's a, whether that's described as Sun Tzu or Clausewitz or any one of a number of strategic thinkers, war is deception. Okay. Would you? Would you? If you wanted to do this, would you intentionally, openly do this? No. You would do this in such a way that you had famous plausible deniability. But look what we've done to our economy. The fourth year of the Trump presidency, 
We have 330 million people in their homes. We have almost 30 million people out of work. We have nationalized effectively big parts of the economy. We look more like a socialist country today than many socialist countries around the world. Yep. This is, this is a piece of insanity that has occurred here, and it either occurred just as an accident or it occurred by somebody's strategic design. And that means we have to take very seriously how we're going to save our country because, frankly, people sitting at home, you don't save your country by sitting at home, let's just say. Can I ask you this? Um, okay, I, I see that. I mean, this is sort of like, um, well, we'll send the virus in, um, you know, uh, and we'll kill everybody, but they'll react in such a way, the Americans, that they'll wreak more disaster on themselves because of the virus than from the virus, uh, which is, you know, the case I've been making. Our reaction to it has been much more dangerous than it itself. It's kind of like, was it Lenin? We'll give them the rope and they'll hang themselves, right? Did, would, right. They have, would they be that far-sighted? I mean, could they say, let's let this thing go over there and the Americans will so overreact, they'll knock themselves down, you know, five notches. Is that within their can? Well, in, well one, let's just say, let's just say we overreact. If we overreact, then they win, right? They're ahead of the game. If we don't overreact, then no big deal. It was a test, and we passed it. Right now, we're engaging in a test, and it looks like we're failing it. So it's kind of a no-lose situation if you're them, isn't it? One, it looks like an accident, number one. Uh, two, if we overreact and our economy slows down, if, our Ameri- if the American people become dispirited sitting at home for months on end, if, if they're somehow able to detach the affection the American people have for Donald Trump because of this, is that a win for communist China? Sure. Now, can they think of this? Could this have been in their, their strategic thinking? Are they smart enough to have thought this? Well, the answer obviously is, again, I'm theorizing about this, but to suggest that the Chinese are not among the greatest strategic thinkers in the history of the world. I mean, these are people who have mastered a way to govern 1.4 billion people. They have, they're an ancient people, have been around for thousands of years and have done this kind of strategic thinking. Let me interrupt again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to follow and I want to help the audience follow. Sure, they're capable of it. Sure, they're smart. But let's say for the sake of the argument that, you know, I'm right, Seth's right, you're right, that we have done more damage to ourselves by a long shot in our reaction to this than to the virus itself, than the, the, the damage the virus itself has done. Why would they think we would have done that? We haven't done this before. You know, we've, we've cited SARS and Ebola and all these other things and Asian flu and blah, blah, blah. Why would they, why would it be reasonable for them to think, oh, those Americans will send a bunch of flu, we'll send a bunch of COVID over and they will react in such a crazy way that they'll, um, they'll undo themselves. What precedent would they have for thinking that we might do that? No, no, that, that's, a, that's a great point. I guess what I'm saying is, uh, it's a test, right? If it works, great. And if it doesn't work, that's fine too. If they send it over and we react, well, fine. But if we overreact, then they, they, they've succeeded in what they were trying to do. And if we don't do it, it costs them nothing, doesn't it? I mean, it, there's a sense in which um, this just may be an accident. But once the accident may have occurred, they decided to let 
people go from Wuhan, China to the United States, and they decided to do something, something in a way provocative, but also um, as a way of confusing us by not letting us in there to figure out what was going on in Wuhan. We didn't know what we were dealing with. Is this going to be, you know, 10, 20, 30 times more deadly than the flu? Or is this just the flu? You know, flu-like kind of a problem for them. And so if you don't know what you're dealing with, you tend to overreact, don't you? Well, we didn't know what we were dealing with, and we overreacted. And then once we overreacted, unfortunately, I think the American media and our great political divide in the country seized on it. And then we go from something that could be managed to a pandemic, to panic, to a national crisis. Now, could the Chinese have anticipated that? No, I don't think they could have anticipated that in the least. But once they they got the ball rolling, you know, it was going to go wherever it could go. And again, what did it cost the Chinese in all of this? They're going around the world describing how much better they are in dealing with this virus than the United States. They're going around the world selling, you know, personal protective equipment to all these countries having bought it up in December and January, they're now reselling that around the world, making money, trying to help people out because of the crisis. And so, again, even if they didn't start it this way, they certainly exploited it for maximum strategic advantage. And again, I do think the Chinese, look, they're not perfect. They make all sorts of mistakes. And I think when all is said and done, this is going to be a mistake on their part. But they are very nimble and they know how to you know, they lie easily, and they're very good at manipulating things to their own political advantage. They spend a lot of money on communications here in the United States and around the world. They know how to manipulate the media just enough here and there. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount them in the least. In fact, I think, as I argue, they're the most serious foe we've ever faced in the country. Yeah, they're, whatever the original... Uh, source, whatever the origin of this, their behavior since certainly makes them look more and more suspicious, right? I mean, they just behave so badly on not letting us in, not letting us look at it, sending the people over, as you've said, in massive numbers, all sorts of things. Brian, what do we do? What's the right response? I imagine there's things we want to do on many levels, right? But tell us, I, I, I saw an amazing thing, and one great thing this president has done, you know, I, I, we agree on, you saw it first, and, and, and told me first, was, you know, he talked about China and woke up the American people about how they were getting shafted by China, the raw end of the, the deal, the short end of the stick for so long, like no other president has. Uh, as a result, and because of this virus, clearly, something like 65% of the American people think China's responsible and should pay a big price. I think they should. I think you think they should. What what price should they pay or price says? Well, look, uh, they should be held to account for this. But, but your original point, though, is, you know, what to do. President Trump ran on and was elected on this idea that we need to make better trade deals. We need to hold the Chinese... Uh, to account just on those bad trade deals that we've been having, you know, the theft of intellectual property, you know, forced technology transfers, et cetera, where they've really been stealing five trillions of five trillion dollars of American wealth over the last decade. President Trump goes back even farther than that 
and he was trying to, he may not exactly use this word, but other, others do, decouple our economies, right? Produce the things that are produced in China, get them produced here or somewhere else in you know, Canada and Mexico, somewhere here in North, North America. Decouple the two economies, I think, really was where the president was going. And I think just as an aside, um, part of the virus crisis is about recoupling our economies. You saw the Chinese ambassador to the United States today said we need to rethink the relationship and we need to work on these things together. Now, that all sounds very friendly. What he's really saying is we need to make sure that all this stuff about globalism, we need to get back to globalism, he's essentially arguing. You know, this idea that we can separate our countries, we can't do that. We got to, we got to, we got to get in this together. Now, this is, this is a contradiction, of course, between, you know, what's actually going on in the world. The American people, after all this, want, I think, an even more radical decoupling from China. I, I've gotten a bunch of messages today, people saying boycott, divest, sanction. You know, both because of, not because of my article, just because of everything that's going on. Boycott, divest, sanction. That right now is the spirit of a lot of the American people. Well, that's not, that's not unsensible at all. They look at everything that's going on. They look at the fact that they're losing their jobs, that, as you say, people are dying both from the virus and, and from staying at home. People look at that and they think, this came from China. This is their false boycott, divest, sanction. What else can we do? Well, several congressmen have talked about uh, defaulting on the national debt that the Chinese hold of the United States. China today has 1.01 trillion, maybe more now, uh, of U.S. Treasury bonds that they hold. That is, we and owe often, them that. You know, use that as is, leverage against that. That is, we owe them that. We, the United States, owe China 1.1 million, let's just call it, in U.S. Treasury bonds that the Chinese government owns. Congressmen are talking about defaulting on that. I think that's a bad idea. Why would we hurt our credit rating over that? Some congressmen are talking about getting rid of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Um, and being able to sue China in some international court. Eh, I don't think that's going to work. One, China co-ops all these international organizations anyway. Even if you got a judgment after 10 years of suing them, you know, is the president then going to, you know, enforce any judgment? The answer is no. I think the president needs every option right now of figuring out how to make China pay. There's a group in Tennessee that you and I have talked about before on the show that have collected China's defaulted sovereign debt that the People's Republic of China owes to individual American citizens. That number itself is over a trillion dollars. That's a tool the president could use to make China pay. He should do that just in the course of things anyway. That's one example make China pay on the defaulted sovereign debt they owe Americans. That just seems like common sense. Then the president needs to go and look at where else he can make China pay a strategic cost for everything they've done. And that will come in the form of 
again, bringing manufacturing back to this country, making sure that they play by the same rules. Right now, Americans are investing, strangely, in communist China. Sometimes they don't even know they're investing. China is in America's capital markets on Wall Street. China wants to come back to Wall Street and borrow more money from U.S. investors. People are <laughs> China was talking prior to this crisis of borrowing from U.S. investors about $3 trillion over the next 18 months. Well, who after this crisis would want to be investing in communist China? And yet all the Wall Street mavens want Americans to be investing in communist China because they think that's good for a global system of trade and finance. Some of this stuff is so bizarre that you can't, you can't even make sense of it in the real world, that you have this economic competitor in communist China that everyone can see rather clearly. And then you have the elites, the political and financial elites in this country, on the other hand, telling us that we ought to be investing in communist China, investing in effectively their long-term success. These things don't go together. And that's the great contradiction we have right now in America between our really the common sense of the American people and the financial interests of, you know, Wall Street. Now, hopefully Wall Street learns something from this experience. That's one of my great hopes in all this, that Wall Street will realize that doing business with communist China is not a good idea. This is the, this is the way communist China behaves. Is that way back, um, way back, maybe 15 minutes ago, you said this will turn out to have been a big mistake for them, you know, even without our nuclear retaliation or anything like that. Is that why? Because a lot of countries will come to the same conclusion. You don't really want to deal with these people. Right. I think that's what's going to happen. I think people will realize that if you're dealing with a communist regime that ultimately thinks you're evil and believes in your destruction, that these are not the kind of people you want to do business with. Look, you have people today talking about boycotting Chinese-made goods, and I think that could last for a while. Right? Made in America is going to be very popular for some time, and that's where I think the Chinese have made a mistake, that they have awoken a sleeping giant. You know, <laughs> They have pushed the American people too far, and the American people, when pushed too far, will push back, and that will include all the things I've been describing doesn't have to mean nuclear war. I wasn't suggesting that in any way. But it does mean that we're going to put the interests of the United States first. And I think that's where Donald Trump has led us. He has led us to understand that America first is the way to go. Let's put our interests first. Let's get manufacturing back here. Let's get Americans back to work. Let's do what's good for our people. There's a lot of talk, Brian, going on around another uh, round of COVID-19 this fall. Would you put... Uh on the pale, the notion that uh, Chinese might cook something else up to next fall or this fall or next year? Well, I mean, let it go. I assume you wouldn't. That's what I mean. Look, that's one. I mean, if in fact we're in the business now of, of you know pandemics, that that's going to be our lot in life. I think that the American people are not going to tolerate. And so I would say the Chinese would be making an enormous mistake to continue to think they can behave in this fashion. Because if the American people learn that there is a either a second wave or a new virus that's come from China, on and on and on, that they're going to say enough's enough. And then you don't know where politics leads you. By politics, meaning 
the, the 40, interests of the American you. people. You'll get 40 or 50 percent for nuclear war then, I promise you. The second wave will confirm the first wave, the worst suspicions of the first wave, and it'll be a second wave and people will say, okay, we got to put a stop to this right now. Right. Well, I think fortunately, at least in this circumstance, because we know what we do about the first wave, meaning it affects primarily the elderly with underlying health conditions, when there's a second wave, we should know pretty well how to treat it. That is, make sure that the elderly are at home and protected, and that everybody else, knowing that they have very low risks of, of death, get back to work and get back with their lives. That's, that's the good news about this. The bad news will be if the Chinese somehow make the mistake that this kind of political-slash-bio-warfare against the United States is a good idea. Because there they will have pushed the American people. I think, I think already they've pushed the American people too far. But if this becomes a regular thing, well, this, this is, these are the kind of strategic mistakes that lead to war. And that's the thing we want to avoid. We want the American people strong and resolute to defend their freedom. We want an economy that is strong and growing. We want enemies who think it is a very bad idea to do bad things to the United States. And I think, I think now is the time to make sure people are resolute about that. That's a good place to end it. Thank you. We'll put a, uh, uh, we'll put your essay up. We'll put a link up to it. And, uh, thank you. And thank you for thinking about this so seriously and for your continuing, uh, chairmanship of the, uh, Committee on the Present Danger China. Thank you, Brian Kennedy. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Claude, do we oh. have any, uh, interesting communications from our audience? Uh, yes, very interesting communication from uh, the audience. By the way, anyone who wants to com- communicate with the show, uh, interesting or not, feel free to email us at uh, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. We've got some emails and we've got some Facebook posts. So uh, let's see. The first email from uh, Cullen Coates uh, of Crystal Bay Solutions, LLC, by the way. Uh, where, is it, where is that? Do we know? Uh, d- didn't leave a location. Didn't leave a location. Uh, so it says, uh, Bill, I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. You offer wonderful calm among the hysteria of all your competitors. Uh, I sincerely appreciate in your last podcast uh, your several points about the lack of context provided by the media as to the virus compared to, the influ- uh, compared to influenza and many other sorts of details. I got to thinking about how to explain it and realized that a Venn diagram is the right approach. The three circles in the diagram are... Number one, lack of education, general knowledge, and life experience on the part of the media. Uh, The second uh, circle there would be uh, the desperate need for the media to come up with extravagant stories in order to sell and stay in business, uh, to make profit from AOC's (laughs) terms. Uh, And and, uh, number three, the level of uh, TDS, as uh, they put it, Trump derangement syndrome, on the part of those writing stories. The intersection thus is the current media coverage. Keep up the great work. I would say the Trump derangement syndrome enhanced by the general uh, liberal orientation, liberal worldview of the media, Claude. Uh, I would say that's right. And their education background, uh, you're his first point. Uh, and then, yes, they want to sell newspapers. They want to sell uh, advertisers. So, you know, shock effect and, and bad news sells better than good or sells more anyway. Mm-hmm. Um but the other thing that, uh, you know, I've come to realize more, uh, appreciate more lately in this COVID-19 thing 
is the fact that uh, the largest media market in the country is New York. And it's not only the largest, largest media market. I don't even know if that's true. If it's the largest media market, that means people listen. But it's the largest media center. Is okay. that fair, Claude? Sure, absolutely. In terms of shows and, you know, and uh, locations and so on. Uh, NBC, the, all the evening news, is, I guess, come from New York or, you know, sometimes Washington is, is added. But right. so when you have the virus, you know, concentrated in New York like no place else even close and all the media's there, and they're hearing, as I said earlier, sound of the trucks everywhere. Um, and, you know, maybe know somebody or, you know, see what's going on in the streets and lots of ambulances. Uh, it's going to be uh, exaggerated there. Exaggerated, or at least it's going to be um, take on a larger shape than uh, it, it does in the rest of the country. Uh, you know, what you see depends on... What, is it? What, what you see depends on where you stand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they're standing there in the middle of a... If you're in Queens, you know, you're in the middle of, you know, at least for, for a couple of weeks, might as well have been the plague. If you're in Wyoming, <laughs> what's going on? Right. Uh, did something happened I missed? The answer is yes. Okay, good, Colin. Thank you. Write us again. Where are you from, Colin? Let us know. Yeah, let us know. By the way, crystalbaysolutions.com. Uh, says my own personal... Crystal Bay, it sounds like a place I'd like to go to. Exactly. Uh, Colin... It sounds like they also, there'd be another two words, Claude, that might appeal to you after Crystal Bay. Oh, golf you know, course. Yeah, or golf Crystal club. Crystal Bay yeah. golf course. Limited. And if there is yeah. one, yeah, let me know. Uh, Cullen closes out by saying my own personal measure of prominent people uh, is whether I would like to have dinner with them. You and George Bush easily make the cuts. Well, we can do it all together and we can have Texas barbecue. <laughs> that would be fun, right? Uh, this did he one, mean the other George Bush? Okay. Uh, this one is from uh, John Miller, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, Marine Corps. Uh, thank you for your service, sir. Uh, yes, sir. He says, Bill, longtime admirer, uh, admirer from the 80s and recent convert to your podcast uh, as we all weather the uh, confinement. Uh, you are needed now more than ever. And thank you, John, for recently finding the podcast. The numbers are growing, by the way. People are tuning in. I uh, was encouraged to hear you say that the president has at least acknowledged receipt of your wisdom. Uh, having listened to uh, your discussion with Conrad Black, uh, I would uh, love to hear you explore the subject of this note. Just to clarify a bit, I uh, think most would agree that all indicators are that we have seen the worst of what uh, I will call uh, the tsunami of fear, uh, the weeks and months of panic in the face of the unknown. With the likelihood of more studies, such as the uh, Stanford study emerging, uh, what are the chances uh, that the next great COVID-19 wave is not a second spike of infections during the reopening of America, but instead, instead a tsunami of anger uh, at the price we paid for what may turn out uh, statistically to be, in fact, just what the optimistic president described a couple of months ago? Yeah, good. Uh, we got a link to my piece, right? The piece Seth and I wrote. We got it on the website. Absolutely. On, our face, last, on the Facebook page. On the Facebook And Twitter, page. yes. And Twitter, whatever they are. Okay. <laughs> uh, read the last one because we say, I don't know whether there'll be a stage two of COVID. What's the gentleman's name, Lieutenant Colonel? Uh, John Miller. John. John. Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Miller. Semper Fi, by the way. I got a son who's a Marine. I don't know, but... Um, but I do know for sure the body count from the uh, lockdown will be higher than the, the body count from the virus itself. Count everything. But uh, yes, yes, sir. We have reached the peak. But boy, you, you want to hear some bad reporting? I just turned on a, a news station, national news, 
and it showed a chart of the number of cases in, you know, six weeks ago, number of deaths, you know, 50. Now the number of deaths is 46,000. And it just, you know, day by day, it goes up and up and up and up and up. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, it gets worse every day. It does get worse every day. The number gets bigger every day yeah. because it's cumulative. Mm-hmm. You know? right. right. Yeah, for, uh, 44,000 yesterday. Mm-hmm. And then there are two deaths today. Uh, or 2,000 deaths today be 46,000. Uh-huh. Tomorrow, there's one death be 46,001. But you could still say it was worse today than it was yesterday. Because the total number is higher. Yeah. Even if it dropped from 2,000, a rate of 2,000 to a rate of one. This is the dishonest stuff. If you look at the curve, it's, you know, it's peaked and it's going down. Yes. 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 Thank you, Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel. All right, let's see. Who else do we have here from the email machine? Uh, we've got our buddy Doug Giuliano, uh, who emails in often. Uh, the uh, subject is schools. He says, uh, Bill, after listening and analyzing the data, I've come to the following conclusion. When you look back on this pandemic, the biggest mistake we made was closing the schools and not having the very healthy young exposed to the virus during the lockdown so we could have uh, built up herd immunity. Uh, we will never eliminate the virus and it will be uh, and it will break out again until a vaccine is developed. Once the schools are open uh, in the fall, we will see numerous uh, asymptomatic cases maxed uh, as the common cold and the flu. These children will then uh, infect the older population uh, and those uh, with uh, comorbidity. Yeah, no, I'm writing my next piece will be on the schools. Uh, you know, should have hit me first as a former secretary of education, but 55 million kids, you're out of there. Go home. I mean, you talk about uh, dislocation. You talk about inconvenience. You talk about disruption uh, and then worse. And now if people go back to work, their kids are still at home. What do they do? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Plus time lost learning. Let me give you an educator's point. Education for young kids requires couple things, attention, consistency, and regularity, okay? It means they got to pay attention. Mm-hmm. You got to have consistent lessons, you know, saying the same thing. And regularity, you got to have it over time on a regular basis. Right. You teach math, you cut that out for a couple months, you, lose, you can lose everything you learned that year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'll have more to say about that. Thank you. Okay, so, uh, yeah, let's go to Facebook, because people, you know, if they like you on Facebook or follow you on Twitter, uh, they can also interact there. i uh, got uh, tons of reaction on Facebook, but we'll just read uh, a few. We ask people their thoughts uh, on what's happening with COVID-19, but also how are you coping with it, uh, what are you doing at home. Uh, Jane E. Brown checked in, and she said, uh, having a difficult time, uh, but we must encourage small businesses in America to open now. Uh, some are just less than 10 employees providing a service or product that can uh, be all done with precaution and common sense. Uh, Dana Stewart checked in on Facebook and said, passing time by gardening. Uh, Kat checked in. Uh, she said, so blessed to be at home with everything uh, I could possibly need, unlike some areas uh, of the planet. But, uh, Dr. Bennett, I still don't understand why the people over 60 don't shelter in place and let those under 60 get back to living, working, going to school, following the safe protection policies that have put in place, that have been put in place. Sure. No, I, you know, let, let my people go. Uh, you know, you need to stay at home. You're over 60 or 70 and have conditions. If you can do it, do it. But, I mean, I'm, I'm over 70, have some conditions, but I'm, I'm staying put, but I'm working. 
Right. Now I'm fortunate to be able to do that. Not everybody can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if you're unloading stuff from Walmart, you know, they need you, but you can't do it if you're 65 right. and have underlying conditions. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I'm lucky enough to be able to do it. But yeah, you know, remember another thing, you know, with this, I'm always talking about suicides, and opiates and all that. Remember, just on the economic side, quite apart from all the jobs that are lost, which is, what, 21 million now? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, think of what's happened to the nest eggs that those folks in their 60s have been building over the last 20 years. Right, right, right. Yeah. Really, a hit they've taken. Now, hopefully, a lot of that will come back, but we don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, this final one from Steve Brown, uh, checking on Facebook. A little selfish of me to pull this one out, but it caught my attention. Uh, Steve says, Bill... Here in the villages, that's that's in Florida. It's a retirement community in Florida. Uh, we are still playing appropriate golf. Uh, separate carts. Appropriate golf. Yes. Uh, separate carts. Uh, holes have PVC pipe in them to prevent the ball from going in the cup, and so you don't need to pull the pin. Uh, it says, I'm 76 and need to get out while still using social distancing. Uh, and then there is often avoided landscape maintenance. Uh, save me a lot of doing it myself. Appropriate golf. Claude, is there a dictionary definition of that? Uh, you know what? To me, golf is always appropriate. Uh, no, in it's Maryland, always, It's never, an, <laughs> never a bad time. <laughs> right. Well, in Maryland, we can't play. Uh, in D.C., the three courses there you can't get on. Uh, but in Virginia, you can play golf uh, in, in some courses. Raspberry Trails and uh, uh, Bristow Manor, uh, you can get out and play. And, and they're doing all the... the, the um, Taking the right precautions uh, in the clubhouses, from what I understand, I got a couple buddies who were able to get out and play. Uh, so I, I, I don't, again, I don't know why the golf courses are closed. Yes, it's a luxury, but there are jobs there. Uh, like you okay. have talked, you talk about Bill. I mean, a lot of the stuff as far as not working, but also not being able to do these things, have to do with lifestyle and mental health and things like that. I mean, and there's no other game that's socially distant like golf. I mean, you don't have to t- be that close to anyone on the course. You walk in, and it's just fun. Boy, I know the audience is thinking and listening to Claude thinking the same thing I am. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you got to prime Claude to give an answer. Just ask a <laughs> golf question. Flows like Niagara. Exactly. You start, I thought you were going to list all the open courses in the <laughs> state of Virginia. <laughs> go down the list. <laughs> well, then, of course, outside Richmond, as we move to Roanoke. Yeah, yeah. Well, for a sponsorship on the podcast, perhaps I'll mention them more if they would, you know, pay Fine. us for it. <laughs> Fine. Um I want. I still want to put out a request because I think it's fun. We got to have a laugh. Mm-hmm. Apart from the really serious things, like not being able to go to your job, not being able to go to church, not being able to take the family out for a meal, not being able to take you know a walk in the park with a bunch of kids and see them at the playground. What's some an absolute value trivial thing as far as life goes that you miss? You got to confess your idiosyncrasy, like my friend who said. Gosh, you know, I play penny poker in Atlantic City and I can't go. (laughs) Nickel (laughs) poker. Or, you know, um, I don't think it's trivial, but, you know, college football still. (laughs) Yeah. They got to do it. I think they're going to do it now, don't you? Oh, yeah. They're going to do it. Even if there's some differences as far as crowd and attendance and things like that, they're going to play these games, I'm sure. Yeah. You've heard my solution. I mean, there's the stadium separation, six feet. Mm Mm-hmm. If you go with your wife, or do you have to be six feet away? You, you know what? No, you shouldn't have to. I mean, if you, go, I think if you, it's the same thing if you're walking outside. I mean, if you're walking outside with people who live in the house with you, who you're constantly exposed to, no, you don't have to be six feet away. You have to have an ID. Do they all have to have IDs? Show the same last name. Yeah, I don't know how no, you enforce it. Never, yeah. You know, I, I didn't enforce <laughs> this crap. I mean, I, you know, I'm sorry. 
But anyway, that's, that's one way to do it. Second, I guess you could empty the stands. Third, you have people show up not in July 1st, but August 1st, start the season in October. I don't care. There's that long gap, you know, after the championships, then the next week, what, it's Army-Navy. Right. You know, and then there's like this long, long gap before we get to the, uh, the playoffs, the four, the four teams. You could collapse that some, start in October rather than September 1st. Or my other solution, um, <laughs> just to get the Ohio State listeners going, we could just, just have the SEC play. <laughs> right. That's all we really care about anyway. That's right. all, that's I all, mean, eventually you know, that's what the playoff is going to come down to. SEC teams in Clemson, so. SEC, it's just <laughs> SEC and Clemson. Just let's formalize. Let's put Clemson, the SEC, where they belong. Right. Take out. Uh, Vanderbilt. Vandy, Vandy, and maybe Kentucky. I don't know. Well, Kentucky's had a pretty good run uh, at it yeah, recently. Right. Take, take out Vandy, put in Clemson. Take and out just, Ole Miss, maybe. They haven't. And maybe well, even Mississippi well, State. Well, they beat Alabama five years ago. I guess it was five <laughs> years ago. Anyway. Okay. So I'd love to know something that you miss. Uh, you know, I can't get a pickle. You, you know, thought a lot about this, by the way. You thought a lot about this college football season. Those are some really good options. Well, it is. I mean, it's almost uh, July, isn't it? No, I guess it isn't. No, <laughs> it feels like it, but it's not. I'm feeling the need to call Phil Steele, and, you know. Well, maybe we should. Maybe we should get him on. We'll have a fun little five-minute, ten-minute with him talking about the college football season. You know, and he, would, he would know. He would have good ear to the ground, wouldn't he? Let's see if we can get him on five, ten minutes. Just guessing. He just say, just got to guess. That's all. Well, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 